One, I'm a teacher, and I teach respiratory medicine, respiratory care over at the uh, Technical College, Bowling Green Technical College. And the only other thing you need to know about me is I like baseball. So it's kind of funny. Ed asked me to uh, bring a sermon, and I said, okay, I'd, I'd love to. And so he, he sent me an email, and he says, gave me some do's and don'ts. And he says, don't preach on this, don't preach on this. And he said, don't improv. Now, I used to be in an improv troupe. You might not believe that, but it's, it's, if you don't know what improv is, it's, it's comedy that you just make up on the spot. So I used to do that. So he said, none of that. I think what he was really saying is, prepare your sermon and don't get up there and just, you know, make it up as you go. So I did prepare a little bit something, but I came back and I told him, well, Ed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk on baseball. And I think he just looked at me like, no, you're not. Well, I am. I'm going to talk on baseball. I played baseball my whole life. Well, I shouldn't say my whole life. I quit when I got too old to play and uh, started pulling muscles all the time. But it was well after college. I think maybe I was 30, 35 years old. And Kathy can attest to that, my wife. She can attest to that. And I played in thousands of ball games. And then after that, uh, I actually umpired. And I did that for a long time. I just quit that a few years ago. But, you know, of all the baseball games I played and umpired, there's one game in particular that really stood out. And that's when I was 15 years old. We were playing in the state all-star championship. And uh, we were playing a team from eastern Kentucky. And this team was awesome. And we knew it. We'd watched them play a couple other games. And so here we are in the championship game. Win this game, we're state champions. And it was a, it was a nail-biter of a game. I think we got down to the, we played seven innings. We got down to the bottom of the seventh inning. And I can't remember exactly if it was one to zero or two to one. But we were behind one run going into the last inning. I'm the first batter in that inning. And our coach was a great coach, a guy named, uh, uh, well, his name doesn't matter. I'd... I'll think of it in a little while, and I'll just blurt it out in the middle. But uh, Red Callis was his name, and he came up to me and he goes, Now, Dwight, he goes, this guy is throwing a fastball right down the middle, first pitch in every inning. He says, Now, you dig in there, and you get ready, and you hit the ball. Okay. Now, this guy was, he looked like Ed with a beard. <laughs> and he's 15 years old. He had a beard. I mean, we're, here we are with peach fuzz all over our face, but this guy had a full-fledged beard. 15 years old, I'm going, hmm. Well, anyway, he was. He's about 6'4". I don't know, but this guy was throwing so hard. So I dig into the batter's box, and I'm making up my mind. I'm going I'm to swing at this pitch. It can be 15 feet over my head. I'm swinging. So that guy rears up. About time he throws the ball. Oh, man. I step into it. I swing with everything I've got. And I hit that ball so hard, straight down. 
And it bounced way up in the air, kind of down toward third base. So I take off toward first. Now, I'm not going to brag about too much, but one thing I'll brag about is I was pretty fast. Now, I wasn't a great hitter. I wasn't a great thrower, but I could run. Maybe that's because I had an older brother. I don't know. But I made it to first. Well, moving forward, I finally get around to third base. Two outs. Now, this just sounds like this is made up, but I'm telling you this is a true story. So bases are loaded, and if you don't play baseball, that means we've got a guy on first, second, and third. I'm on third. If I make it home, I tie the game up. We have a chance to win. Well, we had this saying, and if you, if you could, go ahead and put up that first slide. We have a saying that says, don't, we didn't make this up, but we live by it. Don't die on third base, which simply means if you make it to first, second, and third, you do whatever it takes to score. So I'm on third base. Third base coach comes up and goes, <clears throat> he goes, now as soon as this guy hits the ball, he goes, you take off toward home as fast as you can go. I said, I'm on it. A guy named Roscoe Robertson up at the plate. He hits a little dribbler ball about like I did out toward the pitcher. Well, I'm going down toward home, and the only thing I can remember is faster, faster, faster. Run faster, run faster. Every step, I just kept saying run faster and faster. I can see out of the corner of my eye, the pitcher is charging to get the ball. He gets it. By the end, he's kind of behind me. And my foot's coming down. Crowd's going wild. <clears throat> How many of there were there? I mean, like 50,000 people. But <laughs> there's more than you think. But about time my foot hits the plate, I hear the ball hit the catcher's mitt. I'm like, I made it. Umpire, you're out. Oh, man, I reached up. I jerked my helmet off. I looked him in the eye, and man, I had a Sunday school lesson for him straight from the church of Satan, I'm telling you. Now, you're talking about talking in tongues. I was ready to do it. You know what? I didn't say a word. And do you know why? Because I was out. And I knew it. My foot couldn't have been this far off the plate. But I heard that, catch, that ball hit the catcher's mitt. Fraction of a second, my foot hit the plate. And I was out. End of game. I died on third base. And the walk back to the dugout. Oh, my heavens, I can remember this so vividly. It wasn't even from here to the back door. Did you ever see that movie, The Green Mile, Tom Hanks? If you didn't see it, it was a movie about guys who had been uh, sentenced to, to death. And from their prison cell, the walk to the electric chair was called The Green Mile. That's what I felt like. And the only thing I can remember to think was, I should have been faster. I should have been faster. Maybe if I had ran one more lap or ran ten more wind sprints or ran the bases three or four more times, I would have made it. And here I stand 48 years later, something like that, and I'm still wondering, what if? It's over. The game is over. And we lost. And I felt like that loss was on my shoulders because I wasn't fast enough. 
I died on the third base. You know, there's some significance of that. I'm so close to home. And it takes a good effort to get to home. I mean, you get out around the third and you think, oh man, just 90 more feet. And I'll have the thrill of scoring. I will have accomplished the goal. You know, when you step into the batter's box, you're thinking, my goal is to make it around and score. Conversely, there is the agony of being stranded on third base. You don't score. You don't accomplish your goal. That's baseball. That's baseball. But you know what? This dying on third applies to aspects of life. Secular, work, play, your sacred life, you're on third base. It's amazing, though it's very sad, that many people are dying on the third base of life. They've got so much that the world has to offer. I mean, it just seems like everything goes their way, and every break is a good break. And, you know, you see these people, and you think, man, you've come, you know, you've come so far, and you've done so many things. Everything's going your way. Fortune's yours. And you know what? They yet fail to score. They never get past third base. They die on third base. Did you know that Jesus met a guy that was on the third base of life? It's true. A man who knew his life was incomplete, but I think he was very, very sincere. And he wanted to do what was right, and he wanted to do what was best for his life. And so we read about it. It's a, it's a parable. I, I bet you most people in here have read it. The rich young ruler. It's found in all three of the Gospels, uh, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all read very, very similar, but they all give us a little bit of information that we really know who this guy is. But I kind of like the way Mark presents it. So if you want to pick up your Bibles there in the, in the pews, or it'll be on the screen. It's Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Mark 10, 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he said, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. I love this verse. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So what do we gather here? Mark tells us this was a man, and you can read in there, and you can tell this man had a little bit of money. 
If you read Matthew's account, you find out this is a young guy. And then depending on your translation, when you read in Luke, you find out he's a ruler. Thus the title of the parable, the rich young ruler. Obviously, he was some kind of important man in the community. Maybe he was a member of an official court or council, or maybe he was a government official, maybe the equivalent of a mayor or a a governor of a region. We don't really know, but we know that this guy had some kind of prominence in the community and that he was very successful. He had wealth, he had power, he had prestige, and he did it all successfully at a young age. Well, the University of California did a study a few years ago asking what people really wanted in life. And the number one thing that they responded was happiness. And I read, actually I wrote this sermon a long time ago. Uh, But I've been in a drawer for years and now I pull it out. So I was kind of looking back over to see if there's any new studies. And actually, you Google it and there's a lot out there. It's amazing how many studies say the same thing. People's number one thing is they're looking for happiness. And I thought, man... Is there that many unhappy people, or do they just want something more than what they already have? The second thing they wished for was more money. Some even blatantly came out and said, I hope I win the $100 million lottery. Whatever it is, I want more money. Third thing, I want better work. I guess that's left up for interpretation, but they want a better job, a different job. Maybe they want to be the CEO. I can tell you from having been a director in a hospital, people came up to me, I don't know how many times, well, if I was in your shoes, here's what I would have done, and it would have worked. And I'm going, well, let's trade. I'll go work the floor for a while, and of course they don't ever take me up on that. But people are always wishing for something a little bit better vocationally. And you know what number four was? As you can see on the screen, it was time. Especially with those that are a little bit older. Have you ever wished that you were a little bit younger? Maybe had a couple of do-overs? I know I have. I wish I had more time for this and more time for that. Maybe I wish I was younger. Now, looking back at this guy, do you notice something? He has all three things that are materialistic. He has money, he has power, and he has youth. And the one thing he does not have is happiness, but he knows it. He knows it. And so, as we read, he runs up to Jesus. Now, I think it's significant that they say he ran up to Jesus. He didn't walk. Nobody carried him in. He ran to Jesus as if there was some type of urgency to this, some type of eagerness. Maybe he thought, I've been unhappy for such a long time. If Jesus ever comes around, I'm going I'm to run him down. And lo and behold, here Jesus shows up, so he runs up to Jesus. He wanted to do it before it was too late. He was seizing an opportunity. 
possibly with a hope that Jesus would ask him to follow him like a disciple. Why do I say that? If you read on down, Jesus even gives him the invitation to come follow him. So maybe this guy was hoping for that. And when you think about it, this guy maybe was closer to being an apostle or a disciple than the twelve he chose. Look what he had going for him. Now think, where were Peter and Andrew when Jesus came to them? They were in a boat throwing out a net. And Jesus comes and says, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishermen of men. But were they out actively seeking Jesus? No, they were fishing. Same thing with James and John. They were in a boat fishing when Jesus came and gathered them. So the fact that this guy ran up to Jesus, I think, is significant in that this guy wanted something that he felt Jesus could give him. Second thing we notice about him is he fell on his knees. Now, on your knees is an action that shows a, a most profound reverence and a complete sincerity. That's why we come down to this altar on our knees. What greater place is there to show our reverence to God? What greater posture is there? No way was this guy tempting Jesus, as was so often the case. You know, from all indications, he approached Jesus in private. You know, if you read a lot of the accounts where people approached Jesus, there was always a crowd around. But there's no indication that that's what the case is here. Had that been the case, why wouldn't they have said it here when they said it so many other times? So maybe he was in private. It certainly wasn't on a street corner where the public is around and you're sitting there saying, look at me. I am publicly professing my relationship with Jesus Christ. No, he's going to Jesus very sincerely. You look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were always trying to trick Jesus. I see none of that here. This guy wants something sincerely. So he asked them the question. He asked Jesus the question. What must I do? Now, folks, he's going down the wrong road, as we're going to later see Jesus point out. You know, there's no greater fallacy in religion than for one to think that life and salvation are something that can be won by good deeds and works. I know you've heard that I don't know how many times before. And it's so current in our, in our society, in our news today, we see, and I'm not picking on the Muslims, I'm not making a, uh, any kind of statement against the Muslim faith, but here they are, the radical Muslims, they're, they're in a car bomb, they run into the public, they blow people up, with the assurance that if you do that, you'll be in heaven. My theology does not teach me that. I think this man was hoping that his search was over and that he had the prescription for eternal life. But we know the kingdom of God cannot be won by doing. It comes from your relationship 
with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You know, when you die and you go to heaven and you're standing there at the pearly white gates and uh, as the common connotation goes, St. Peter's there. I don't think sitting next to St. Peter, we're going to have some kind of angelic, celestial accountant up there who's going to pull out a book with all of our good deeds in it. I mean, it's not going to say, well, Dana, you sang 15 solos in church in one year. That's worth 50 points. And you prayed in public. That's worth 20 points. Oh, but you got mad at the guitarist one night. We're going to have to take three points off of you. And so forth. And when the tally's all done, you've got 1,050 points and you only need 900 to get into heaven. I don't think that's the way it's going to be. You don't go to heaven because of your good works. There's nothing that teaches that in this Bible. Eternal life is a gift. You will receive it, but you cannot earn it. So Jesus comes up with this response. And I'm, I'm telling you what, theologians and commentators, man, they, they kind of berserk out on this. Why do you call me good? I mean, is he saying... I'm not good. Why are you calling me good? I'm not holy. Of course he's not saying that, but so many commentators get messed up on this. I don't think Jesus is denying his own goodness or his divinity in any way, shape, or form. I think he's merely trying to get this gentleman to look at him and say, you are the one and only source of goodness. And in you, I'll find my answer. You know, all goodness has its source in God. And I think Jesus was trying to get this man to understand the nature in which God works. And that is that there is no room for personal achievements or success and pride in a relationship with God. So we move, move to... Uh, 19 and 20. I don't think I have a slide for that, but if you have your Bibles open, um, he says, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, and so forth. Honor your father and your mother. Okay, that's the second half of the Ten Commandments. You probably picked up on that. Well, why does Jesus recite the second half? It's those that are dealing with neighbors, with human relationships. And he admits everything that's exclusively related to Jewish nationalism or Jewish rituals. So Jesus is saying that he has a whole lot more to offer in the way of life than by following some Jewish law. Do you understand? For this man, though, he thought it was just a matter of external conformity. Obey the law and live. And you know what's odd? Conversely, for Christians today, somewhere along the way, we have become assessed, obsessed with the idea that Jesus came to change the law to offer a new law. 
And so we take this license of freedom from obeying the law and we run off into some kind of moral anarchy. I don't understand. You know, Christianity has kind of perverted and misinterpreted the commandments. You know, how many people think they're, they are beyond the morality of the law? How many people construe and interpret the law to fit their own life circumstances? Have you ever heard that? Oh, that's not really what it means. Here's what it means. And they say that to justify their actions. You know, what the, the real problem with that is, is we never really reach a place in our understanding where we can practice the law to begin with. Christian love to God and man is not a substitute for the law. It is the fulfillment of the law. Now, did you catch that? Living the Ten Commandments or any commandments in the Bible is not a substitute for the law. It is the fulfillment of the law. So now we move on, and this situation is really starting to get tragic. And he says, Teacher, all these things I have kept. Do you get this? This guy is fixing to die on third base. He does not understand how going beyond the commandments is his way to salvation. And, you know, I... I I'm sorry to say, but I, I think sometimes churches today have that same eyesight. You know, you look around, they're good people, they're decent, they're ethical, they're even moral, but they really miss the thrust of the point. And that is, what is commitment and an untiring, untiring, what is untiring discipleships? So when Christ lays it out to this guy, his words are all so relevant. One thing you lack. One thing you lack. And as I said a while ago, I absolutely love the 21st verse. Jesus looked at him and loved him. If that does not move you right now, you've got a spiritual problem and you, you need to talk to somebody. Because you could be this guy in this, in this story. Jesus loves you. Every single one of you. But for this man, he sees a great potential in him. Maybe more, than, maybe more than disciples, I don't know. He's earnest, but he just lacks spiritual maturity. He's reaching out for more. And so Jesus says, if you, if you do these one little things, 
He says, what? Come, follow me. And that's why I almost think that this guy approached Jesus. You know, when we're talking about he ran up to Jesus, I think that's why he's saying that. I'm thinking this guy really wants Jesus to say, you've kept the law, you've done good, you've, done, you've had good works. Now, come follow me. But with one, one provision, go sell what you have and give to the poor. You know, I see this as an individualized answer. I don't think Jesus was condemning wealth. If you've got a whole lot of money in your bank account, that's great. I don't think Jesus is saying anything bad about that. Likewise, I don't think he's condoning poverty as to say, well, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven if you don't suffer in poverty. I think this is an individual prescription for this man. He's conquered the do-nots, but he's failed to be proactive, and that is complete his devotion to Christ. He has yet to become the disciple of Christ that he hoped to be. You know, every disciple of Christ, he must get beyond this caution of negative avoidance. And he has to get into an unmeasured self-giving self -giving and devotion to Christ. Every disciple must get beyond seeking a personal good and into a life overflowing into others. Every disciple must get beyond the desires of this world and get into a greater loyalty to Christ. Otherwise, you'll never be that disciple. And so what is the lesson for the church today? Think about it. Jesus never made a bargain. He did not bargain with this guy. Now, this guy had a lot of money. He could have said, well, I'll tell you what. You go cash in your mutual funds and your IRAs from uh, Citizens First. Not that I promote Citizens First. Uh, 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 I'm disclosing here. Any bank, choose your bank. Give away 30% of your money and you know what, that would be good enough. Then you can come on and come with me. No, he didn't say that. He did not bargain with this guy. Christ has never concealed the cross. Here it is. Here's the cross. I was on it. Here's why. Christ never disguised the cost. He tells you, here's what it takes to get into a relationship with me. He never has downplayed his message he has never won any disciple under false pretenses. Now, do you think that sounds hardcore? It might to some people, but look at it like this. You know, is Jesus good to his word? You better believe it. He never wavers. So when he says, I promise you eternal life, I promise you happiness. I promise you a piece of my kingdom. 
then you can bank on it. It is as sure as the sun rising in the morning. God's word is true and it's steadfast. And you know, yet I look around and churches today concede so many of these things. I've seen it personally. I bet you most, a lot of you have too. You know, what evangelist is going to turn away some wealthy tither? Oh, he gives a whole lot of money to this church. We better make sure he's happy. Which, what church is going to deny a man of strength and power? Somebody's in the aristocratic society. Let's elevate them. Let's put them at the top. Shall we make them a deacon? Or perhaps because he's so successful business-wise, we can make him a chairman of the, the finance committee or put him on the, as chairman of the deacon uh, trustees. No, Jesus says, not going to have it. Jesus lost his man that day. But he didn't lose his gospel. And it's just as strong now as it was back then. And do not lose sight of that fact. The gospel continues to be relevant and it's strong. Now, verse 22, here's the tearjerker. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And if that doesn't rip your heart out, you need to see me for a second time. Or better yet, see somebody that's more tuned to counseling than I am. You know, if Jesus ever wept, it would be at this. He already said how much he loved this man. And the man walks away. And what is so mind-boggling is he went away sad do you think he knew he was sad oh absolutely but you know what this guy just died on third base you know if you want to gain jesus you have to put jesus first period If you want this church to grow, then this church collectively has to put Jesus Christ first. Period. Don't die on third base because I'm telling you as a 15-year-old baseball player, and it's, it's insignificant. 48 years later, but, you know, I still think about that game. And I'm telling you, dying on third base is not fun. And this decision that this man made was for eternity. Can you believe that? Now, we have to make this relevant in the last couple of minutes. Where are you? I'm going to venture to say that almost everybody in here tonight 
has already had a salvation experience. And you know putting Jesus first is the way to go. But you know, I can also tell you from my own experience, and I'll just, I'm in the confession booth, but I bet you there's a lot just like me. You know, you have bad days and bad weeks. Almost irrevocably, when I have those bad days and bad weeks, and I take a step back and I'm asking, what is wrong with me? What I find out is I have some kind of barrier between me and Jesus. And I bet you, I bet you, maybe not overall, I bet most of you probably are going to be in, the, in, in heaven. I don't question that. But you know, the kingdom of God is here and it's now. And what keeps me from enjoying and being happy in the kingdom of God today? It's some kind of barrier. Now, if you don't know what that barrier is, I'm telling you, as much as I picked on Ed tonight, we pick at each other all the time, but I love that man more, more than you'll ever know. He can counsel you, and he can help you work through that. So can Dana. Greg plays a fantastic piano, but I know he can counsel too. There are people in this church who can help you work through these issues if you're having them. But I know it happens to us. It happens to us all. There are things that come between us and God, and they keep us from experiencing the Christ-filled life to its maximum. And that's what I get out of this. Tonight, you know, well, we're, we're having an invitation. So, you know, if you're at that point and you're saying, you know, I really do want to commit my life to Jesus. You come on and do it. You say, I'm not sure what it's all about. We got guys here that are going to counsel you right through it. We're going to get you where you need to be. Maybe you've just got some kind of barrier between your life and you want to bring it down here to the altar on your knees before God and just saying, God, help me to remove the barriers that are in my life. You come down here. It's going to be open. Come do it. But don't leave here with something between you and Christ. Don't do it. That's dying on third base. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word. What a beautiful parable this is. Sad for this rich, rich young ruler, but so beautiful for us because we've been giving a prescription of how to live and experience your kingdom. We ask now that you would speak to our, each person's heart in their own unique, individual way. Speak to them personally as you did this gentleman. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.